So it's April Fools today. Hmm. Fools that we are. So we're going to cover a little bit of news, but then we're going to talk about how people have been fooled all this time. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you don't even know why uh, April Fools is around, but I'm also going to help you see how even mythology has been tampered with from the ancient times of uh, the Egyptians to the Greeks, it's always been tampered with. It's always, is it, is it not? I don't know. We're going to see. Is it real? Is it not? It's all just so bizarre, so bizarre. It makes you wonder, why is it that uh, this is happening? Like, why are they so adamant to just keep changing history? and making fools of everyone. So uh, that's the topic of today, considering it is April Fool's Day. And I thought we can start with a little bit of news uh, in what is going on. Uh, Smugglers are crediting Biden for a booming business. Uh, The White House is confirming that, yes, we are going to possibly kick off a uh, COVID passport, which is against the law. 
We have the left pushing mandates now. We're only going to go and do business with companies that align with our rules of social distancing. And you must listen to us because it's Lady Gaga and all of them. And we trust them so much. And we adore them so much that we're going to, you know, follow what they say, of course. <laughs> Those, that's what's really going on in, in the world right now. This is what you're being told, that this is what is going to happen. But the history of April Fool's Day should make it clear to all of you that there is nothing that hasn't been tampered with by those that have the power to rewrite your history. Mm, only now they've um, sped it up. And the question is why? Why are they so upset? Why are they so adamant into pushing for this global change, this new world order, why are they trying to create a one global government? You have to ask yourselves, I mean, who are they appeasing? Why are they doing it in such a rush? I mean, is it because everyone that's in power right now is greedy, but the people before them weren't? That's a question everyone should ask themselves. Why the rush now? What is not being told? Why are we rushing now? That isn't a time, it's not right now the time for that conversation because it's important you understand the changes that they've made. So that way, when the truth is there, you are able to understand it. April Fool's is, you know, I mean, how it started and why it started was pretty innocent-ish, but shows you how weaponizing a religion Fast tracks changes. In order for people to understand what is going on today, they must understand how it's been going on for a long, long time. So let's get with the news first. I think we should start with the um, foreign news, which is quite interesting. So we have uh, Turkey ready to shoot off S-500s. Remember, we were talking about the S-400s they were purchasing from Russia, but now S-500s are in the talk. And here's another development that for me is quite a curveball. China and Turkey are deepening their ties. That's, that's unexpected between the foreign ministers of Turkey and China. Everything from trade, vaccines, and the sensitive issue of Uyghurs were discussed. His top diplomat, Mevut Çavuşoğlu, met his Chinese counterpart, Wen Yi, in Ankara, as the two countries worked towards increasing their already $24 billion trade relationship. China's foreign minister also met with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, where they discussed deepening vaccine cooperation. Turkey is currently rolling out a mass immunization drive using China's Sinovac vaccine. Trade was also a big topic, including Turkey's role as a middle corridor country along China's Belt and Road Initiative. The trillion-dollar project aims to connect Europe and Asia through massive rail networks and ports. Turkey's foreign minister said he also conveyed his country's sensitivity and thoughts on the issue of the Uyghur minority in China. So how will this important but delicate relationship between China and Turkey move forward? What common interests do they share and what are the potential hurdles? 
And joining me now from Ankara is Selçuk Çolakoğlu, who is the director of Turkish Center for Asia Pacific Studies. I'm from Beijing, Aynar Tangen. He is a political and economic affairs commentator. Gentlemen, welcome to Straight Talk. It's good to have you on the program. Aynar, how would you define the current status of Turkey-China relations? Where do they stand now? Well, uh, internationally, uh, it's very difficult. You have the U.S., uh, Russia, and China uh, all uh, in the mix. But uh, the relationships right now are quite good uh, from the perspective that uh, China was able to advance uh, $1 billion in aid during the COVID-19 plus another $200 million uh, loan. Um, and I think this has been helped. But there are obvious, obviously still questions about how to handle the the, uh, the information that's being spread around about uh, Uyghurs, uh, and that is uh, one of the issues. So it's um, domestically and politically, it's okay, but it still needs some more time, especially the economic situation as it applies to the balance of trade. Mm. So Satchuk, the Chinese foreign minister has also been received by the president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Is there any significance to this meeting? Sure, of course, uh, Turkey is giving more importance uh, for its relationship with China. Uh, so, Turkey-China relations is very uh, are very promising in that regard. Uh, the acceptance of the Chinese foreign minister by the Turkish president is a, a sign of this importance. How Turkey is giving import, uh, importance to, to improve its relationship with China. There are many areas of cooperation, so then uh, these are underlining by the Turkish side. And also, uh, Turkey invited the Chinese president Xi Jinping to Turkey, officially. Mm -hmm. So, um, Einar, what could you tell us about the growing common interests the two countries share globally? A lot of it is uh, economic. Um, each country is trying to maximize uh, their value, obviously. As I said before, Turkey is in uh, this kind of middle of this triangle between the U.S., um, Russia and, and China. Right now, Russia and China are pretty much on the same page being driven there by the U.S. But under it all is the economics. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, very promising um, for Turkey, especially in its attempts to uh, balance its trade. This will be a conduit uh, to the east where hopefully there'll be a hungry market for uh, Turkish goods. Yeah, we know that Turkey lies on the middle corridor along China's Belt and Road Initiative. Um, Tatcho, can you talk about Turkey's role in this trillion dollar venture and how could Turkey's position in this initiative determine the trajectory of Beijing's um, future policy? Before we continue this, because it's important that you listen to this, in 2018 and 2019, um, I had talked about the railways that were built between uh, Europe and China, all the way to Beijing, and also the ones in the Middle East, deeping down to Africa. Now, while everyone thinks that agreements between Israel and Saudi Arabia just happened, just under the... Um, Trump administration, you're wrong because they did start flights, right? But they were building railways together before that. And 2018, 2019, we talked about this a lot because it is very, very important. You have to think, why are they heading for railways? Why are they investing in railways and not focusing on planes? Well, I'm going to tell you. It has to do a lot about 
intra-country or let's just say intra-state. But they're not states. Africa, Middle East, Asia, Europe, different stuff. Oh, my dears, if you haven't realized, we're living in the era that people did 100 years ago, setting us up for the time now. So the people now are setting it up for the people 100 years from now. You can see this happening consistently throughout history. And you'll see. Today's show will show you how they've even skewed mythology. <laughs> they've even skewed biblical history. And what April Fool's really meant, which was the first indicator that they had taken control of our time, our space, and our history. So pay attention to what they're talking about here. This is quite important. As it seeks to connect with Europe. Uh, from the beginning, uh, when it was uh, the Belt Road Initiative was declared in uh, 2013, Turkey is very eager uh, to cooperate with China. And as you said, the Turkey's uh, own Silk Road uh, Initiative, Middle Corridor, uh, is also another importance that the Turkish government uh, has given. In, in that regard, the uh, compatibility and integration of the Turkey's Middle Corridor and uh, Chinese Belt Road Initiative is very important. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so far, Turkey offered very concrete projects for infrastructure developments here in Turkey and also uh, as well as uh, cooperation in the third countries. Uh, there are very large scope for that. Uh, as a part of the Middle East tour, uh, Chinese foreign minister also has a very strong agenda uh, to develop uh, the, the regional initiative for the Belt Road Initiative. Mm -hmm. mm. So, Einar, could Chinese plan or projects to finance and build infrastructure across the globe lead to a debt trap, as some argue, or is it a win-win policy? Well, it depends on whether it's completed. You know, if I told you, uh, here's the steering wheel of a car, uh, this is what it's going to cost you, you'd say it's useless because I don't have all the rest. The Belt and Road Initiative depends on having a complete system. Uh, if it's interrupted or prevented from working, obviously it costs too much. But if it can all be pulled together, it should be a engine for future growth. What, what are the challenges before its uh, completion, you think? Well, it's, it's getting all the uh, pieces together, uh, making sure that, uh, in fact, uh, they're completed and on budget and on time. I mean, uh, Chinese have a fairly good track record of doing that, but they also have to pay a lot of attention to uh, local concerns. They cannot just bring in Chinese workers to do all the work. They need to uh, work uh, with the local conditions and workers there, uh, and, and that's very important. It has to be an equal balance. Remember, China views, uh, you know, uh, other countries as equals, which is not always the case when you're talking mm -hmm. about uh, uh, Europe and the United States. Yeah, we can move to the uh, Turkey's trade relationship, maybe, Satchuk, because its relationship with China is marked by a massive $18 billion trade deficit. How could this situation be reversed or be more balanced? Uh, China is a very competitive economy, uh, not only for Turkey, but uh, most of many countries for the world. Uh, in that regard, uh, Turkey is well aware that these uh, trade imbalances uh, will continue for certain times in coming years. 
Uh, but Turkey, the Turkish government uh, is demanding uh, some balancing uh, acts or balancing uh, policies like uh, visiting China, more uh, visitors from China uh, to uh, invest uh, Turkey's tourism industry and also Chinese foreign direct investments here in Turkey uh, regarding with the Belt Road Initiative also Chinese involvement in big infrastructure projects here in Turkey. So there, there are some ways to keep a balance for a larger economic relationship rather than just focusing on the bilateral uh, trade imbalances. Mm -hmm. uh, Ankara is demanding for these other balancing factors. So, Einar, there has been a talk of a possible free trade agreement between Turkey and China. Do you think it's viable, feasible and possible under the uh, current circumstances? Yes, I mean, all, all, all of the above. But, you know, the question is, uh, what are the geopolitical gyrations? Uh, I, obviously, the United States will not be very happy with it. It has a number of issues, military, etc., uh, out there, obviously, uh, EU is putting pressure on Ankara to um, uh, tone it down in terms of the Greek issue uh, and, and Cyprus. Uh, so at, at this juncture, I mean, China is um, non-judgmental, open arms. It's not; they're not saying that you have to believe uh, what <laughs> what China does. Just simply, is there a basis to do trade? But in terms of economic development, I, I just like to add that I think uh, Turkey should be pursuing what Italy has done. And what I mean by that is building brands. I mean, I, I know from one of the industries that uh, we had uh, here uh, personally that a lot of like luxury chairs and furnishings were actually mm -hmm. carved in Turkey, but they were sold under Italian brands. I think it's time that uh, Turkey took to the forefront, developed their own brands and got that additional value, uh, which really represents uh, quite a bit more than just, uh, you know, competing on day-to-day uh, -day, uh, manufacturing. Yeah, you just uh, mentioned uh, the U.S. a few times. How is the West alienation of Turkey pushing Ankara to pursue, let's say, other opportunities? Do you think Turkey could align itself more with Russia and China now? No, I don't. I think it's a balancing game. I mean, all, all countries are uh, very aware of the kind of. Uh, uh, difficulties that are facing it. I mean, you have an international barrage of uh, media that's telling that China's bad, but, uh, you know, the, the fact is that China has achieved so much in 40 years and its development model is uh, more successful than the uh, the West, which has been going sideways. Uh, so I, I, I see Ankara looking to balance. They don't want to jump in anyone's uh, pocket they will be um, their own country and they will continue that way. Um, so, Satruk, what do you think are Turkey's priorities when it comes to Chinese investments? Which sectors you think need the Chinese investment the most? Uh, basically, uh, also in recent years, Turkey and China have cooperated uh, some uh, science uh, MOUs regarding the mining industry in Turkey. Uh, and also some, uh, there are some big infrastructure projects like the uh, ports, airports, uh, highways, and also high-speed trains in that regard. Mm -hmm. China has a sufficient uh, experience for that. Uh, from almost, uh, for last decade, uh, Turkey is expecting Chinese involvement for Turkey's uh, building a nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. uh, now, uh, the Sinop nuclear power plant tender is open again. So let's just stop one second there. So she's asking, like, what else do the Chinese need to get into? He talks about ports. I've mentioned over the years how China has infiltrated the ports in 
Africa. So we're talking South Middle Africa. They've built all their ports. They bought the ports in Greece. They bought ports in Spain. They bought them. Like they owned them. They revamped them and they owned them. So while they were doing that, what was Turkey doing? If you remember, I had walked you through how they opened up schools in the Horn of Africa, how they moved their military training center to Somalia, how they're active in Kenya, how they've created railways and ports and military training in the Horn of Africa. If you stand back on the moon, you can see exactly who the players are, what they're doing, and what their plan is. I mean, the question you should kind of have in the back of your mind as you watch all this unfold is, why are they avoiding airspace? Why are they all focused on sea and land? And there will be a third one. So China is, will be the uh, likely uh, contender or competitor for the, the standard or candidate for the standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so Turkey's expectation uh, from China involvement big tenders, projects, and mining sectors here in Turkey. So Aina, what are the other fields that the two could cooperate in terms of investment technology maybe? Uh, technology is one. You you already have a number of uh, free uh, free zones where people uh, you can develop technology and not have to pay taxes. There are special benefits, etc. Uh, those might be um, of of some interest, especially for developing for the local markets. Uh, mm-hmm. Chinese uh, you know, pr- producers are very very cognizant that you don't make it in China and then sell it to the rest of the world. What you do is you customize it. That's why they have been so successful in Africa. And I think uh, Ankara would be a prime partner uh, to be that place. I mean, uh, the West views perhaps uh, Turkey is exotic, but a little backwards. Uh, for China, uh, it's right on par. You have all the uh, high degree of educated people, you engineers. Heard that, Africa, this right? This is a prime opportunity. Yeah. So, um, Satruk, lastly, how could a close-knit relations between Turkey and China impact a wider Um, region from the Caucasus to the Middle East to Central Asia and even to the Black Sea? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the big cooperation area between Ankara and Beijing, of course, the uh, increasing compatibility between Turkey's Middle Corridor and Chinese Belt Road initiatives uh, because Ankara is giving much more importance to integrate the whole regional networks from the Black Sea, uh, greater Black Sea zone uh, area to, to China. Uh, if uh, China and Turkey can succeed to integrate all these regional infrastructure networks, uh, we can see more uh, increase of economic cooperation, bilateral trade, as much as uh, regional uh, integration, uh, China, Turkey, and other uh, regional countries. There will be a, another stage for the cooperation between Ankara and Beijing. All right, gentlemen, unfortunately, huh. we'll have to leave it here. Thank so you that was interesting that for, for us to watch, no? Uh, and see how things are coming all together in a nice little neat package from 2018. I am just saying there's a lot going on that people aren't getting, like... Remember the S-400 debacle and how we stopped Turkey from getting the F-35s, but now they're getting S-500s. Russia's new air-to-air S-500 surface missile system is being branded as the F-35 killer by its media and the makers. 
The anti-aircraft missile system has entered state trials, said by the Russian Deputy Prime Minister at the Army 2020 Forum, as reported by Russian news agency TASS. According to publicly available information, the S-500 will feature the 40N-6 extended-range guided missile, capable of engaging targets up to 155 miles away. It would be able to detect and attack up to 10 ballistic missile warheads, flying at speeds of over 4 miles a second. The 30-foot-long two-stage solid-fuel missile travels at 9 times the speed of sound and is able to intercept targets moving at a speed of 15.6 Mach. The 40N6 missile carries a blast fragmentation warhead with a range of 310 miles and designed as a new generation of air and missile defense weapons. S-500 operates a separate method of ballistic and aerodynamic target destruction. The national interest reported that the S-577 N-6 and N-1 missiles can intercept hypersonic cruise missiles and ICBMs, as well as aerial targets flying at a speed of over 5 Mach. The manufacturer has claimed that the S-400 is capable of shooting down low-orbit satellites and certain types of spacecraft in near space. The characteristics inherent in the S-500 surface-to-air missile make it possible to destroy hypersonic weapons of all modifications, including in near space, the head of Russia's aerospace forces told the defense ministries. The S-500 can be classified as the first generation of space defense systems, since in the future it will be able to destroy low-orbit satellites and space weapons. And that was the meat of it. It will be able to destroy low-orbit satellites. The Russian Defense Ministry has continued to say that the S-500 will enter service in 2021. The S-500 can also complement existing systems, such as the S-400 and S-300 by expanding Russian airspace and providing a further layer of defense against saturation strikes. However, Russian experts has never shown any serious intention to replace the S-300 or S-400 with the S-500. It had always been displayed as a different class of air defense system to reliably intercept the most dangerous strategic threats. Russian experts said that our system neutralizes American offensive weapons and surpasses all of America's much-hyped anti-air and anti-missile systems. With S-400 units still being shipped to anti-aircraft regiments across Russia and exported throughout the world, widely replacing the S-400 with its more expensive S-500 counterpart would be a massive financial and logistical commitment. Whereas the introduction of the S-300 and S-400 is separated by about three decades, this would an abnormally short upgrade cycle of just 10 years. However, Turkey and China have shown great interest in the S-500s. After buying the S-400 against Washington's threats, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan had stated that it will jointly produce the S-500 missiles with Russia. There is absolutely no question of Turkey taking a step back from the S-400's purchase. That is a done deal, Erdogan said. There will be a joint production of the S-500 after the S-400. Keeping this in mind that Turkish defense industry is boosting and have enough capabilities to join hands for production with Russia and China. You also need to keep in mind that Turkey is the second 
most strongest military force in NATO after the United States of America. Second most powerful military force after the United States of America. Remember, second most powerful military force. Hmm. How interesting. So while that's going on, right, we're having rubbish happening in our nation. So much rubbish. So we're going to start with, um, I think we should start with the human smugglers praising Biden. So at this point, if you're still on Facebook, you must come off because I will have to terminate that so that I am not terminated. So give me a second. Come over to um, Twitch because Trovo is not really working today. What is going on? I got to fix that. So come over to Twitch. Here we go. Take a listen to this. It's cray cray. Americans may eventually have to prove that they're vaccinated against the virus before taking a flight or watching a movie. The White House confirmed it's working on guidelines for vaccine passports. NTD's Miguel Moreno has that story and a pandemic roundup. The debate's robust, but it looks like vaccine passports will become a reality in the U.S. President Biden's team says they're working on guidelines for private businesses that'll work on these passports. What's important to us uh, are that some important criteria be met with these uh, credentials. Part of that criteria, he said, is making sure people have access to the digital vaccine passport and that their privacy is protected. He didn't go into what businesses could require of them. Next month, New York stadiums and theaters will start using the Excelsior Pass, a COVID passport the state approved in partnership with IBM. Sarah Chan of the University of Edinburgh told The Nation Speaks that the issue could get complicated. So we're starting to see, you know, differences in which vaccines are approved in which countries based on uh, who they're made by, where they're made, etc. What if we start to have different passports depending on which vaccine people have had? So really here we're talking about creating new categories of global disadvantage. We're turning people into second and third class biocitizens. And I think that's deeply, deeply concerning. And what about people who don't want to get the vaccine? Will there be religious exemptions? Will states in the U.S. force businesses to use the passport? Too many questions to explore in this segment. If you want. Here's the thing. They're talking as if they have the right to do this. In our nation, they don't have any right to discriminate against us for a medical condition, which means I don't have a vaccine. It is against the law. And businesses that choose to use COVID passports should be banned from doing business within our state. This is why it's important to take hold of the state. So it's going to be the cities and the countries, but we're not going to let one drop of blood drop, except for the ones that they're taking through whatever other means they're doing. No shot shall be fired, but it will happen. And this is where your state is important. This is where your community is important. This is where you are the news and you take control of your backyard because they cannot deploy this. If Walmart decides to deploy this, Walmart cannot operate in my state because it is against 
the law. Want to watch the full interview with Sarah Chan? Check out Saturday's episode of The Nation Speaks. Now, nationally, the virus trends are taking a bad turn. Cases are rising. President Biden called on people to get vaccinated and mask up. He also asked officials to require masks if they're not. I'm reiterating my call for every governor, mayor, and local leader to maintain and reinstate the mask mandate. Please, this is not politics. Reinstate the mandate if you let it down. And business should require masks as well. Let's take a look at the numbers. We ended Sunday with a seven-day case average of 61,600. And that number's been going up steadily for over a week now. An 8,000 case jumps since the 19th of March. And new hospital admissions are also going up. But deaths are still falling. Now, deaths are falling. People getting sick is rising, probably because people are getting vaccinated. Teachers are vaccinated. Your kids are in school. They're shedding and they're bringing it home. It's a damn flu. Happens every year when schools open. I do want to take a look at Texas. It sounds like Biden's putting a lot of faith in these masks and asked officials to reinstate their mask mates. But looking at Texas, their case numbers overall have gone down since they repealed their mask mandate over two weeks ago. Meanwhile, cases in states with mask mandates and tighter restrictions are going up, like in Michigan, New York City, and New Jersey. Point is, something's happening in Texas, but neither the CDC, Dr. Fauci, nor President Biden is publicly acknowledging the phenomenon. So basically, Texas has no mask mandate, nobody's wearing masks, and all their cases are going down. But the cases are going up in states that require masks. But, you know, whatever. Facts and all. And that's all from me, Steph. I'll toss it back to you. Thanks, Miguel. And Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis announced he'll take executive action against vaccine passports. He says it's completely unacceptable that people would need to prove they've been vaccinated just to be able to participate in normal society. And some mom and pop landlords are now selling their rental properties as the CDC extends the nationwide eviction ban until the end of June. Some small landlords just aren't getting paid. The ban was due to expire Wednesday. It says the moratorium is needed to keep people in their homes to help curb the spread of the CCP virus. The rationale is that evictions would force people into shelters or other crowded conditions. The moratorium only pauses evictions. It doesn't relieve tenants from rent or housing payments. The Census Bureau said a March survey showed that around 20% of adult renters said they didn't pay last month's rent. As unaccompanied migrant children continue to flood the border, the Biden administration is calling for help. And internal documents reveal that the number of sex offenders being apprehended at the border has hit a five-year record. NTD's Grace Coulter has the update. Let's just get this straight, right? Let's just, before we get into the border crisis. So the government now says you're not allowed to evict people. You own a house and you rent it. That rent pays your mortgage. You're out of pocket. The bank says, well, I'm just going to foreclose on your property. And you're like, but there's a mandate. And now I can't get these suckers out. You know, why don't I stop paying my rents? They can't kick me out. I'm still responsible for it, but they can't kick me out. So I'm just going to live here and you can't do anything. This is where it gets vicious. 
this is where it gets really, really vicious because what do you do? What do you do? You sell your house at a loss. You get rid of it. (laughs) This is how they're getting the middle class, but you know, whatever. Now the government, I mean, where are these landlords filing lawsuits? Where are they? The CDC is not a legislative authority. If I owned a house and I was renting it and the people in there didn't want to pay me and they say you can't evict them, I'll be like, that's my property. You have no right to tell me that I'm going to let someone squat there while you're holding me responsible for a loan. If you're taking on the responsibility that I can't evict them, then you need to, CDC, pay my mortgage payment. Because that's not how it goes. There are older people that have retired that rely on that as income to eat. Okay? When does the government get to say what they do with your property? I mean, whatever, right? I already emailed T-Mobile as well, which suddenly says that they can change stuff and delete things on my phone as they wish. And it's like, oh, I do not consent. I sent it to privacy at t-mobile.com. I do not, I own my phone, dude. You can't get into my phone and do what you want. That's not what I want. Um, See ya. So what are they going to do? Start excluding us because all these businesses want to violate it? No, I'm going to wait for their answer. And then I'm just going to go to my local courthouse and say that they're, um, they are accessing my property and deleting my property from my phone and without my consent when I'm paying them only for service. Service does not mean you can delete content on my phone that I own, not you, that I own. Hence why I circle back to the whole, why are we paying payments for the phones? I know a lot of us can't afford it. Um, When I purchased my um, iPhone, I made sure I had the money for it. Um, I'll stick with my phone. I still have my, my other Android phone that I purchased two years ago. Right. And I've been putting in a, I have like, like I said, I have tons of savings account. I've been putting money in there to buy my next phone. Right. Buy your phone straight out if you can. If you can't, I get it. Try to pay it off as soon as possible so you have no debt to them. Uh, you know, throw in an extra $20, do something, you know, because then they have full control. They're like, well, we actually own it. You're just paying payments. Uh, in this case, I own my phone and for them to say that, Hey, you know, your iPhone 12 that you purchased for $6.99 on sale at Apple, I can go in there and delete your photos, your messages, anything I want, because I said so it's like, no, I I pay you to provide me communication services, not to delete my stuff. As the influx of unaccompanied minors at the border continues to serve, the Biden administration is asking for volunteers to help deal with it. A memo issued Thursday shows the administration asking federal employees to volunteer for up to 120 days. As of March 23rd, over 16,500 unaccompanied minors are in the care of federal agencies. And according to documents leaked to Axios, the administration projects the number of unaccompanied children crossing the border could rise from about 16,000 this month to as many as 26,000 in September. This Breitbart video shows four unaccompanied children making their way across the border. The youngest child, only nine years old, three traveling from Honduras and one from Belize. Honduras, ¿cuántos años tienen? 14 and 9. Okay. ¿Y a dónde van ahorita? ¿Se van a entregar? Yes, we're going to. 
One 17-year-old boy was also with the group. The migrant children said they began their long treks alone and met each other along the way. But being so young and without any backpacks for food and water inside, it's likely they were escorted to the border by coyotes. The children said they were going to turn themselves into Border Patrol. Hopefully, the rest of their journey is safe. But for so many children, the long trek is anything but. Christy Hutchison, the founder of Fighting for America, has seen the reality of what's taking place at the border firsthand. Speaking at the We the People Stand for Border Security rally on Friday, she said for the sake of migrant men, women and children, it's actually more compassionate to secure the border and keep it closed. This so cartels can't exploit and abuse them. Um, the drug cartels who literally own the border. They are making millions and millions of dollars on the backs of this policy, this, this Biden's policies right now. We've seen it firsthand. They're, they're using these little kids to bring drugs and fentanyl and stuff. That's part of the passage. And if they don't do so, then they threaten their families. And they say, if you don't do this, we're going to kill your families. Where's the humanity in that? And two human traffickers, also known as coyotes, tell Spanish language network Univision that business is booming, and it's because of President Biden's policies. And internal DHS documents obtained by undercover journalist nonprofit Project Veritas shows Border Patrol encounters with criminal alien sex offenders are at a five-year high. The documents say this is likely due to the pandemic. But in the five months of 2021's fiscal year, 214 illegal alien sex offenders have already been arrested, compared to 154 for all of 2020. And former President Donald Trump says he will soon visit the border. During an interview with Fox News' Justice with Judge Janine, Trump said many border officials have asked him to visit. Over the next couple of weeks, the Border Patrol wants me to go, uh, probably over the next couple of weeks. Trump added that President Biden is the one that should be visiting the border since he makes the decisions. During his first press conference last week, Biden said he will visit the border at some stage, but didn't set a time frame. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Grace. And Biden has responded to the news of Trump's trip to the border. Biden told reporters that his administration is putting in place a plan he feels very confident about. He also said he doesn't care what the other guy does, referring to Trump. And armed members of the far-left group Antifa clashed with passing-by drivers and counter-protesters at Oregon's capital this Sunday. The state has been grappling with violence and rioting for 10 months. NTD's Christina Kim reports. A group of heavily armed protesters showed up this Sunday with weapons such as guns and bats to Oregon State Capitol in Salem. Footage and images show members of the anarcho-communist group Antifa assaulting those with pro-Trump and pro-law enforcement flags driving by the Salem Capitol. Most of the people wore all-black clothing and items to obscure their faces from being identified by law enforcement. Some flew Antifa flags. Antifa members reportedly planned to counter an Oregon Freedom Rally that took place on the same day. Despite law enforcement efforts to keep these tubes apart, they ended up clashing. Antifa members reported balloons at a number of cars driving by, breaking some of the vehicle's windows. Author Andy No, who regularly reports on Antifa activity, posted a scene from the riots on his Twitter page. You can see one car with severe damage after a large tree limb was thrown through the front window. 
Other footage on social media shows a man reportedly surrounded by many protesters in all black. When he draws his gun out, he's almost immediately detained by police. He wasn't booked into the correctional facility and was later released. Oregon State police officers and local officers responded to the scene and declared the gathering an unlawful assembly. Three people were arrested afterwards, but a bail fund said it coordinated with the Salem Antifa chapter to pay for bail for two of the people. Chris, did you hear that? Antifa chapter. They're organized. They have money and it is all put out there. So you're surrounded by a bunch of people with bats that say, I kill Nazis and I kill fascists when they're the actual fascists and Nazis and you get arrested. Hmm. He wasn't booked. Of course he's not going to be booked. He didn't do anything wrong. He was defending himself. His life was under threat. But, you know, people still go to rallies. Now, speaking of stuff, you know, when I tell people that a lot of people get blackmailed, right? I'm not joking. That's why I asked Matt Whitaker, what are we doing about blackmail? It is a very big problem. People will extort you and blackmail you when they know they've got something on you. Now, I am clear on this. I have seen something that tells me that Matt Gates has redeemed, is on the road to redemption, right? And I believe that there was a setup. I believe that he's being extorted. I do. But I don't believe that he's 100% innocent but not for exactly what they say, right? Kind of. Now, I'm going to first talk about the Papa John's guy who claims that he was framed, right? Because they do frame you. It's kind of like me. The attorney general of North Dakota was like, you have a charity. I was like, I don't. I never filed to be a charity. I couldn't. It would have taken too long. So it was a for-profit thing. I never said I was a charity. Well, I'm saying you are. And it's like, so you're going to file a suit or investigate me because you think I am when I've clearly stated I'm not. So here is the Papa John's guy complaining that he was framed. Take a listen. This shocking lawsuit. Now, it alleges that a public relations firm hired to promote Papa John's pizza conspired and attempted to frame the founder, John Schnatter, of being a racist. Now, Schnatter says that the transcripts of a phone call prove the firm's hit job on him. Joining us to tell his story exclusively is the founder and former CEO of Papa John's Pizza, John Schnatter. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So let's just get straight to this. Uh, you are alleging that this PR company um, planted these racism allegations and that this happened after you would not pay $6 million. Take us through the beginning of the story. Well, the we knew from the get-go that the tape would exonerate me. What we did know, that there was two tapes. There was a hot mic uh, live after the call ended where a laundry service blatantly, unequivocally had an intent to set me up, destroy my reputation, and to hurt Papa John's uh, International. That's what the tape proves. Yeah, well, let's actually explain to folks at home, and we can bring this up. I look at part of the transcript of the phone call and the PR firm that you referenced, Laundry Service. That's who is involved here. And explain what people are seeing. Can you see this on your 
So why does laundry service, Adelman, you know, all these PR firms, right? Why do they all have employees that have pictures of people punching the president and saying, I kill Nazis, right? Why are they working with these people? Why do they have employees that promote violence? Why do they have employees that promote these ideas? Why are you giving them your money? You can find a, a conservative PR firm that could do the job. PR is short form for paid PSYOP, okay? Your screen there at home and explain to folks what this is. Yes, uh, Jason Stein with um, Laundry Service, they were hired for $6 million, which actually came out of the franchisees' pockets. So they paid Laundry Service to actually protect the reputation, enhance the reputation. And what Stein did is he actually set me up and did everything good to hurt the reputation. So it was completely contradictory to what he was uh, paid to do. John, you know, let me ask you, why would this PR firm target you? Why, why were you single? Well, I was on Goodell. Uh, Goodell and Washerman, in Washerman's words, are like brothers. Uh, so that could be one part of it. Um, Steve Ritchie had let laundry service go, so they were bitter. So maybe they were retaliatory towards me and Papa John's for being fired. And uh, I think there's a couple of board members that co-conspired with this. Steve Ritchie, the CEO, and Mark uh, Shapiro, the head of governance, that wanted Mark wanted the marketing business. He got a $10 million uh, inside payment from Endeavor. And Steve Ritchie was going to lose his job if he uh, didn't get rid of me. So I think we had a motive. Olivia Curley wanted to be chairman of the board. So we have all these selfish, personal motives. Sure. And then we have that vendor because they lost the job. Uh, but the franchisees, I've talked to multiple franchisees uh, the last couple of weeks, and especially the last couple of days. They are they're livid that they paid this firm $6 million uh, to help enhance the reputation. And the board of directors and the CEO actually went underground, went behind the back and tried to paint his. But but listen, outside of the internal politics of Papa John's, were you targeted, do you believe, because you're conservative and because you're you're outspoken about your political beliefs? Is that one of the reasons they thought you were vulnerable? One of the goals of all this was to get to the bottom of how this happened. How can you have a public company with a public board set the founder, the chairman, the spokesperson up on a false narrative as a racist? How can that happen? And we want to get to the bottom of it. And we now can link laundry service co-conspired within itself. That's on the tape. We now know Casey Washerman, the owner of laundry service, uh, was part of this. Some of his email emails to Goodell and to Adam Silver with the NBA, he had the tape. He was going to use the tape to hurt me. Now, does this go, how far up the chain of command does this go all the way to, we know we got Goodell's in it. We know Silver's in it. We know Washman's in it. We know the board of directors of Papa John's is in it. Does this go all the way up to Joe Lockhart and um, Obama and Clinton? We haven't got to that yet, but we have so much more data yet to come. So, we just, John... We, John, I'm sorry, just to refresh people's memories, this goes back to 2017 when you, in a boardroom, a phone call, you talked about um, the kneeling at NFL football games and how it was impacting viewership for the NFL football games and therefore impacting Papa John's as one of the key advertisers as such. And then all of a sudden, uh, before the, the woke calls for cancel culture were really happening, you were the first because there were immediate calls for you and your company be, to be canceled because you were deemed a racist just for talking about how the kneeling was impacting your company and the lower ratings for the NFL. That's how this well, started, right? Not exactly, Heather. Therein lies the problem. Okay. Uh, 
on that call, all I did is tell Goodell, do your job and resolve this to the owners and players' satisfaction. I never mentioned Neely. I never took oh, sides. Okay. It was my job. That was the first clue that something here wasn't right. How they turned those benign comments um, that were neither a side on either side, they were just Goodell, you know, get your act together. You've got a debacle here. You're the leader. Fix the problem. They turned that into kneeling until I was taking the uh, sides of the owners and it snowballed from there. So that was my first wisp of smoke that said, hey, uh, Shapiro uh, and Steve Ritchie, the CEO, are behind the scenes here stirring up something that's not true. That was my first wisp of smoke. Yeah, and the beginning of this woke culture, cancel culture that's happened to so many people uh, since then. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story and let us know uh, what happens next. Now, I am making a plea to the body language ghost to analyze this next segment, which I'm gonna have to do side by side so I don't get targeted, blah, 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 blah. This is really important because I want you, you know, I was talking, okay, so I was talking on the phone this morning with Millie, who, by the way, was poisoned. Um, she's not doing well. And um, at 2 o'clock on Twitch, she's going to play Shadowgate 1. So for those of you that haven't watched it, it's going to be the documentary on there. So she she's really sick. Um, was it a coincidence? Was it on accident? I don't know. But I could tell you she's really sick. And we were talking about this and we were like, oh, my God, if we could get the language ghost to do it, um, that would be great. I want you guys to pay attention to this interview. This is really important. Just a couple of hours ago, late this afternoon, the New York Times ran a story saying that Florida Congressman Matt Gates is under federal investigation for playing some role in sex trafficking potentially having a relationship with a 17-year-old girl. There are very few details in major news outlets tonight about this story. We have no background on it all and not even any very informed questions. Instead, we've invited Congressman Gates on the show to respond to these stories and give us his view of them. I want you guys to pay attention to their interactions. Congressman, thanks so much for coming on. Appreciate it. Um, so this is obviously a serious allegation. Tell us what the truth is from your perspective. It is a horrible allegation and it is a lie. The New York Times is running a story that I have traveled with a 17-year-old woman and that is verifiably false. People can look at my travel records and see that that is not the case. What is happening is an extortion of me and my family involving a former Department of Justice official. On March 16th, my father got a text message demanding a meeting wherein a person demanded $25 million in exchange for making horrible sex trafficking allegations against me go away. Our family was so troubled by that, we went to the local FBI. And the FBI and the Department of Justice were so concerned about this attempted extortion of a member of Congress that they asked my dad to wear a wire, which he did with the former Department of Justice official. Tonight, I am demanding that the Department of Justice and the FBI release the audio recordings that were made under their supervision and at their direction, which will prove my innocence and that will show that these allegations aren't true. They're merely intended to try to bleed my family out of money. And this former Department of Justice official tomorrow was supposed to be contacted by my father so that specific instructions could be given 
regarding the wiring of $4.5 million as a down payment on this bribe. I don't think it's a coincidence that tonight, somehow, the New York Times is leaking this information, smearing me and ruining the investigation that would likely result in uh, one of the former colleagues of the current DOJ. So let's just put something out here one second. So what he's saying is, is that the New York Times leaked this, even though tomorrow his dad was supposed to be meeting with this person to give a down payment. So that means they have someone within the FBI and the DOJ that gave him a heads up. And they wrote a story to get ahead of it. Being brought to justice for trying to extort me and my family. So a, cu- a couple of obvious questions that come to mind, and again, just to restate, this just happened, don't have any other information beyond what we've already said and you have said. Um, who, First of all, who is this Department of Justice former employee who's trying to extort the money from you, you say? His name is David McGee. He was a top official in the leadership in the Northern District of Florida as a prosecutor. He currently works at the Beggs and Lane Law Firm. As a matter of fact, one of the recordings that was made at the FBI and Department of Justice request occurred at that law firm, and the money that was supposed to be paid today that would have shown even more evidence of David McGee's work in this extortion scheme, that was foiled by the New York Times story, and I believe that's why this uh, this horrible information and these terrible allegations have been used this evening. So you're, and, and I'll get to the investigation in a sec, but, but you're saying that David McGee was motivated by greed. He was trying to extort money from your family. That's his motivation you're saying? Uh, I know that there was a demand for money in exchange for a commitment that he could make this investigation go away along with his co-conspirators. They even claim to have specific connections inside the Biden White House. Now, I don't know if that's true. They were promising that Joe Biden would pardon me. Obviously, I don't need a pardon. I'm not seeking a pardon. I've not done anything improper or wrong. But what I am troubled by Uh, is the real motivation for all of this. You know, just tonight, Ted Lieu, a Democrat, is calling on me to be removed from the House Judiciary Committee. And I believe we are in an era of our politics now, Tucker, where people are smeared to try to take them out of the conversation. Oh, dear. I've been talking about that for years. But it has to happen to big people to make it true, right? I'm not the only person on screen right now who's been falsely accused of a terrible sex act. You were accused of something that you did not do. And so you know what this feels like. You know the pain it can bring to your family. And you know how it it just puts people on defense when you're accused of something so salacious and awful. But it did not happen. It is not true. And the fact that it is the basis of this attempt to extort my family tells a lot. And if the FBI and Department of Justice will release the tapes that they are in possession of, the American people will see what is really going on. You just referred to a mentally ill viewer who accused me of a sex crime 20 years ago. Um, and it, of course, it was, it was not true. I never met the person. Um, but but I, I do agree with you that being accused falsely is one of the worst things that can happen. And you do see it a lot. Let's go back to the investigation. You you say that it was uh, that it was or is underway. There was an investigation. What is the basis of that investigation? What is the allegation? Is that really not very clear from these news stories? Yeah, again, I only know what I've read in the New York Times. Uh, I can say that actually you and I went to dinner uh, about two years ago. Your wife was there and I brought a friend of mine. You'll remember her. And she was actually threatened by the FBI, told that if she wouldn't cop to the fact that somehow I was involved in some pay for play scheme, uh, that she could face trouble. And so uh, I do believe that there are people at the Department of Justice 
who are trying to smear me, uh, you know, providing for flights uh, and hotel rooms for people that you're dating who are of legal age is not a crime. Uh, and I'm just troubled that the lack of any sort of legitimate uh, investigation into me would then permute, would then convert into this extortion attempt. I, I don't remember the, the woman you're speaking of or the context at all, honestly. But I, I would like to know who, so they're saying there is a 17-year-old girl who uh, you had a relationship with. Is that true? And who are they, who is this girl? What are they talking I, about at uh, the New York Times? The person doesn't exist. I have not had a relationship with a 17-year-old. That is totally false. The allegation, as I read it in the New York Times, is that I've traveled with some 17-year-old in some relationship. That is false, and records will bear that out to be false. How, how long has this investigation been going on? Do you know? I, I don't know. When were you first informed of it? Uh, you know, again, I, I, I really saw this as a deeply troubling challenge for my family on March 16th when people were, you know, talking about a, a minor and that there were pictures of me with child prostitutes. Uh, that's obviously false. There will be no such pictures because no such thing happened. Um, but really on March 16th was when this got going from the extortion standpoint. So what what happens next? I mean, you, you can see there is this investigation, I guess a criminal investigation. I'm not quite sure where the sex trafficking part comes in. I don't, again, for the fifth time, I don't really understand the story very well. But wh where does it go from here? I mean, you're, you've made an allegation against someone by name on the air and accused him of trying to extort millions of dollars from your family. What, what happens tomorrow? Well, what was supposed to happen uh, was the transfer of this money that would have implicated the former colleague of these current DOJ officials. But that's obviously not going to happen tomorrow because the New York Times story was leaked in order to quell that investigative effort. So here's what needs to happen next. The FBI and the Department of Justice... So the important thing to listen to here is that the New York Times, right, leaked the story so they couldn't catch them taking blackmail money. Okay, so language goes, body language goes. I would totally love this, and I'll play it, and I, oh, yeah, totally. I'm not going to tell you what I see because then you're going to see it. It's kind of like someone telling you, oh, do you see two faces or a cup? And then you see both or you just see one. If I tell you, oh, it's a cup, that's all you'll see, right? So hmm, I'm not going to say anything. So now we're going to get into April Fool's and how we've been fools for a long time. So we're going to take a short intermission, fill up those coffee cups, and get right back at it. I count the falling tears before before my eyes. Seems like a thousand years since we broke the ties. Awesome cover. Nobody's fool, nobody's fool. 
history has been changed, not only in your actual factual history, but even in your mythology. So I'm going to tell you about um, a little known myth that, you know, I do a lot of research, read a lot of stuff throughout my time. I was always that book nerd that wanted to go to the big libraries. And when I was in Egypt the first time, I didn't get much time to. But the second time I went, you sure know that I went to Heliopolis. I went to all these places that had things that were just um, different, just very, very different. So before we start this, I'm going to show you a clip of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is a dramatization of Sodom and Gomorrah and the escape of Lot's family. I only want you to take a look at it. We're not going to comment much on it. But I then want you to think. It's 2021. Apply 2021 to what you're seeing. And tell me what you think happened. Just, you know, you don't even have to tell me because we're going to cover that on a weekend. We're going to cover that on a weekend. But for now, let's just watch it and see what's up. For many decades, individuals living near the Iran-Armenia border have been mysteriously disappearing from regular villagers and shepherds and their entire flocks of goats to foreigners and adventure seekers. People have been vanishing in the area and locals say it's due to a curse. Since the mid-1950s, however, their disappearances have been linked to an ancient artifact central to the three main Abrahamic faiths. And according to the U.S. government. Oops. Wrong video. That was the next. Gosh darn it. Here we go. Sodom has become corrupt. A city of sin. But my nephew Lot lives there. He has a family. The outcry against Sodom. Is great. Sins are very great. Going to destroy. What if there were 50 good people in Sodom? Would they suffer the same fate as the wicked? If my angels find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I We're in Vatican City. you have to ask yourself, why were they not allowed to look back if they were wiping out a civilization? It wasn't just a city. And this uh, we'll revisit at some point. Why not look back? If it's eradicated, let it be. Cut the cord. There's nothing that it can provide you. Because if you take anything from the past with you moving forward, it'll just corrupt your future. Almost like guilt. Almost like looking into the past and living in the past rather than the future. Sounds kind of familiar to many. The more you think about the past, the more you regret, the more your future is shaped differently. It's let's move on. Now let's go to the really good part, which is... Did you know that the CIA was looking for Noah's Ark? Oh, yeah. It was. 
For many decades, individuals living near the Iran-Armenia border have been mysteriously disappearing from regular villagers and shepherds and their entire flocks of goats to foreigners and adventure seekers. People have been vanishing in the area and locals say it's due to a curse. Since the mid-1950s, however, their disappearances have been linked to an ancient artifact central to the three main Abrahamic faiths. And according to the U.S. government, this artifact was the subject of a classified investigation by the CIA for over 40 years. But what exactly is it? Some say it's an ancient structure that is evidence of how advanced early humans really were. Others say it's an extremely large crashed alien ship that's been scattered across eastern Turkey on Ararat mountain range. All know it as Noah's Ark. So the question is, where exactly is it? Our mystery begins in 1959, when Turkish captain Lan Durupinar discovered an unusual shape while examining aerial photographs of a NATO mapping mission taken over Mount Ararat about two miles north of the Armenian-Iranian border. So, like I said, I've been operating in Turkey for a long time. Uh, I had been, and I did have cosmic clearance for NATO. That's how I know stuff. Captain Durpinar, a photographer and map specialist who examined thousands of pictures from the mission, believed that the photos were evidence of an archaeological anomaly larger than a football field with a smooth shape, resembling that of a boat. He believed that this boat belonged to Prophet Nuh According to Shem Uzmiral, the husband of Durupinar's niece, prior to the discovery, the area had remained largely untouched as local villagers believed the site was under some kind of a supernatural curse or powerful anomalous influence. Locals who lived a few miles down from the site speak of many strange disappearances and even the deaths of individuals who had ventured up to its location to see the anomaly over the decades. Many people, including shepherds, who were intimately familiar with the area, had either completely vanished or had been found dead in and around the site. Yet, despite these strange occurrences, the Turkish authorities were unwilling to investigate the area due to its proximity to the USSR border. While scientists today state that the likeliest cause of the many disappearances in the area may have been due to the villagers dying from a lack of oxygen at its high altitude, the few who returned came back with pieces of wood that appeared to be from some kind of wooden structure, which they claimed possessed magical healing properties. Since no official reports of an object this large had been made before, and the Turkish authorities attempted investigation, into the anomaly based on Durupinar's research failed to yield any results. Durupinar forwarded his photographic negative to an aerial photography expert named Dr. Brandenberger at Ohio State University in the United States. It didn't take Brandenberger too long to confirm that whatever was on Mount Ararat was not natural. Now, while Turkey's examination of the anomaly did not yield any results in 1959, the U.S.'s Central Intelligence Agency had already launched an investigation into it ten years earlier, in August 1949, with its file classified as top secret. On June 17th of 1949, during a routine mission over the area, 
The U.S. Air Force photographed an unusual structure in the same location Dura Pinar would explore 10 years later. The matter was passed to the CIA, who sent spy planes to get a better look, naming it the Ararat Anomaly. For the next 25 years, the CIA's interest in the Ararat Anomaly remained hidden from the world, with many believing that the department's investigation into it as merely an urban legend. However, according to historical researcher Jason Colapitu, 1974 saw various branches of the U.S. government as well as high-profile individuals and organizations from outside of the government take a sudden interest in the location of Prophet Noah's Ark. But throughout that decade, any and all information about the anomaly would be restricted. Requests that were made from inside of the government were denied, with the agency stating that all photography taken during the 1940s and 50s above Mount Ararat will be unhelpful to their needs, therefore unavailable to anyone outside of the department. Meanwhile, requests that were made from outside of the government itself saw the CIA flatly deny that any such information on the anomaly even existed within the agency. It was not until 1999 that they decided to release a number of documents to the public that indicated that the search for Noah's Ark reached to the level of the White House. Over the next decade, those files would then be uploaded online, proving that the agency were very much concerned about the possible existence of this artifact. But the main question here is, why? What possible security risk could an artifact from approximately 100,000 years ago have on this modern age? Some practicing Muslims and Christians would say that such information would prove that mankind existed for far longer than what science claims, thus forcing the modern world to completely rewrite its science books. However, even though such a discovery has the potential to reassess our understanding of human development, it's not something that could be considered a security threat to the mid to late 20th century, or could it? As already mentioned, for decades prior to the 1949 discovery of the anomaly, local villagers in the area were known to have either completely vanished or had been found dead when exploring the area. The most famous missing person was a Mr. Donald McKinsey, a 47-year-old Scottish climber who disappeared in 2010. Mackenzie had been illegally climbing the mountain without a government permit at the end of September that year, before he vanished. His mission in life was to find Noah's Ark. Could the causes of his disappearance and that of many local villagers over the years be merely oxygen deprivation or is something way more technologically advanced than the remnants of a giant boat resting on top of Mount Ararat? In early 2018, Yavuz Ornik, a lecturer at the Marine Sciences Faculty of Istanbul University proudly claimed on Turkey's TRT channel that he believes Noah built his ark with steel plates propelled by nuclear power, had sent a drone to look for dry land, communicated with his son via cell phone, and was able to save all of the world's species because he filled the ark with not pairs of animals, but sperm and eggs. In other words, developed a form of vitro fertilization. Ignoring the cell phone and drone claim, Hornick's overall argument is fascinating, as he states that Prophet Nuh had access to technology that was on par with what we have today in order to complete his mission. According to tradition, God commanded Nuh to collect two of all types of living creatures, animals, birds, and insects, as well as a selection of plants, and load them into the ark to save them from extinction. However, many skeptics say that such a task would have been physically and biologically impossible. For example, Robert A. Moore, writing for the National Center for Science Education, 
asks how did Noah preserve the seeds needed to restart life after the flood has subsided. How did he control insects, rodents, and fungi? Seed storage is a complex technology, and without proper techniques, no seed can maintain its viability for long. If we are to believe that Noah succeeded in his mission, then maybe Ornick's opinions could have some merit. Could it be possible that Noah's Ark was a misunderstood technology, and that it was actually a DNA bank? It's hard to imagine to what extent this would have happened in the past, but if it did, it would have to be told as a story like what we see in the Bible and Quran. But this is just one perspective. According to Dr. Barry M. Wormkessel, the Ark and its related technology offer the clearest evidence yet of past alien intervention in human affairs. Wormkessel states that it's rumored that Noah's Ark was built in ancient idol and of Akkadian origins. People, he says, had links to extraterrestrials and who may have possessed advanced technologies such as stargates and ancient nuclear weapons. However, contrary to the popular opinion, Wormkessel notes that to simply state that the Ark finally settled on Mount Ararat based on scripture is misleading, implying that pieces of the craft could be scattered around the entire Ararat mountain range. This could perhaps explain why several locations within this radius have been suggested for the Ark's final resting place. In January 1994, a team of scientists said that they have found Noah's Ark on the Turkish-Iranian border, 32 kilometers from Mount Ararat. The remote site contained a buried ship-like object, resting at an altitude of 2,300 meters, at 170 meters long and 45 meters wide. It conformed almost exactly to the 300 cubits by 50 cubits boat that God told Noah to build at least according to what was written in Genesis 6 in the Bible. Saleh Bayrak Tutan, head of geology at Turkey's Atatürk University, estimated that the age of the vessel to be more than 100,000 years. With the site directly below the Mount of Al-Judi, a location explicitly named in the Quran as the Ark's resting place. On a side point, while there is a fair amount of debate amongst modern Quranic scholars that the Great Flood was only a local and not a global event, the views of medieval Islam scholars were more open-minded. For example, Al-Mas'udi, who wrote the Akhbar al-Zaman, states that the Ark began its voyage at Kufa in central Persia and sailed as far south as Mecca in what is obviously now modern-day Saudi Arabia before finally traveling back to eastern Turkey and Armenia, where it settled in Judy, where the 1994 discovery was made. This would have made the flood cover an area of at least 2,500 kilometers, touching two continents. In November of 2018, researchers from the Bible Archaeology Search and Exploration Institute, otherwise known as BASE, claim that there is strong evidence that the ship is on the mountain of Tahta Suleiman, nearly 700 kilometers from Mount Ararat. The base group says they found wood fragments at the 15,000-foot elevation and took the samples to be analyzed in a lab. The Tahta Suleiman is a notorious mountain with a legacy deep in the supernatural folklore. The Zoroastrian fire worshippers view the area with reverence, while within local Islamic lore, it's said that the Prophet Sulaiman once captured a powerful entity there, after it challenged him to take his ring. Bays found in this mountain fragments that showed signs of petrified wood. Furthermore, 
they found microscopic sea life in a rock sample from the mountaintop, which is normally found at the bottom of the ocean. They say that this discovery makes it a likely candidate for being the remains of the Ark. Among their findings, they state that, 1. The object they found consists of dark rock with an uncanny boat beam-like appearance in several places. 2. The wooden object is at 13,120 feet, but the nearest tree is about 8,000 feet, and there are very few trees even at that level. 3. They found abundant sea life at an adjacent summit, indicating that at one point, the seawater in the area covered its mountain peaks. While there is a consensus amongst biblical and Islamic scholars, and perhaps even the CIA, that the Ark settled somewhere in eastern Turkey, the Bayes organization states that this 2018 Takht Sulaiman discovery does not contradict the earlier findings made in Turkey. Like Wormkessel implied, they state that the mountains of Ararat, at least according to ancient texts, signify an entire region or kingdom, and not just one specific mountain. And we're doing the search for Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat in Turkey. The pieces just don't fit. They just don't mesh. And it led me to believe we needed to look somewhere else. So, if no one can find Noah's boat on Mount Ararat, are the scriptures unreliable? Or could it be that Noah's boat is not on Mount Ararat? And While traditionally, biblical archaeologists state that Ararat is the definitive location for the Ark based on scripture, Bayes believes that it's not completely accurate and that the ship could have come to rest anywhere in a region spanning scores of kilometers from Turkey to Azerbaijan and Iran. To us at the mysterious Middle East, it suggests that the Ark was either A. So incredibly large that it spanned several countries or B. That large fragments were over time spread across the area as the flood subsided, which is the more likely explanation. This latter view somewhat corresponds with ancient Syrian Christian and Armenian Christian accounts of the Ark, as well as an Islamic perspective that states that the ship came to rest on Mount Judy, which is in the general area of Ararat. Did the Ark really exist? And could it have been more technologically advanced than what we imagined? Whatever the case may be, the 20th century has proved itself to be a period of intense secrecy surrounding its existence and there is no reason to believe that the 21st century would be any different. So, that seems odd, right? But there's even more odd stuff. Hold on. I got some more odd stuff. Before I show you the origins of April Fools, and you understand, well, you kind of think, why such secrecy? Why such a change and why such obfuscation? You know, a lot of people don't seem to put one and one together a lot because it's that's how you hide the truth. You scatter it around and then you coin it differently and it's on the dark corners of the internet. But here we go. Smallest country. Vatican City is the home of the Roman Catholic Church and where the Pope lives. With an area of just 0.49 square kilometers, it's by far the smallest country in the entire world, both by area and population. And it has many of the quirks you typically associate with a tiny country. Its own stamps and postal system said to be the single most efficient in the world. 
the world's shortest railway, stretching a mere 300 meters, and even its own private army of Swiss guards in wonderfully flamboyant attire. As you can probably imagine, it's full of religious statues and sculptures, including the 140 saints that adorn the grand marble colonnade of St. Peter's rather circular square. So what is an ancient Egyptian obelisk doing slap bang in the center? I mean, they've added a cross on top, plus an engraved op, plus an engraved plinth and some symbols representing the Sistine coat of arms. It even used to have a metal sphere at the top, rumored to hold the ashes of Julius Caesar, but none of that makes it any less out of place. And then to add to the mystery, the obelisk was actually here first, and the entire St. Peter's Square was built around it, with the Egyptian monolith as its centerpiece. So why exactly is it here? Hold that thought, we've got a border to cross. After a long and tiresome journey, we've made it to Rome, where the mystery deepens. The city is home to a further seven ancient Egyptian obelisks, such as this one in the Piazza del Popolo, as well as a handful of ancient Roman obelisks, like the one atop the... Okay, funny story. We made fun of Biden, but those are the Spanish steps. That's where women get catcalled. I fell up the steps there. I totally tripped. I actually stayed at a hotel. Um, so if you're watching the picture of the the steps. I actually had just finished drinking at Piazza di Popolo, where that Egyptian obelisk is. And here's another right in front of you. And um, as you're looking at it, for those of you seeing it on the screen, on the left, right up the road and around the corner is a very well-known small boutique hotel that people like me usually stay at. Um, and then right around there, there's this um, hairdresser called Dolly's, which back in 2000, I want to say 2001, I went to get my hair done and it cost me in 2001, 375 euros, which I billed to, the, to, to, you know, <laughs> my contracting company. Cause I had to do my hair to go somewhere and it was the worst hair done ever completely overpriced. And it was so dumb. It was the worst place to go to, but, um, you know, I just wanted to say I tripped up those stairs actually on the second one where it's longer because I wasn't paying attention. So I just assumed there was a step there and it was more of a longer step. So I fell and then I repeated that on the second. Um, on So there's like step, step, and then like a long one and then steps and then a long one. So on every long one I would trip because I was busy reading and I tripped on all of those because, you know, when you're going up them, you don't see that there's like a longer, you know, stepping area. So that was quite funny. The Spanish Steps, one of Rome's most popular attractions. But once again, it begs the question, why are they here? Hold that thought, we've got a plane to catch. This is the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, France. And it's got nothing to do with obelisks. This is at one end of the Champs-Élysées. And if you climb the nauseating spiral staircase to its 50-meter summit, it offers incredible views of the city. And right at the other end of the Champs-Élysées is, you guessed it, an ancient Egyptian obelisk. This obelisk is 23 meters tall and inscribed with hieroglyphs. And at over 3,000 years old, it's the single oldest monument in Paris. Think about that for a second. That's crazy. It even features on one of the zero euro banknotes. So why is it here? Now hold that thought. We've got a train to catch. London, England. A short walk down river from the Houses of Parliament stands yet another ancient Egyptian obelisk. 
Okay, I'm boring myself now. Just get to the point already. Vatican City, Rome, Paris, London, New York, Istanbul, Israel, Poland, and unsurprisingly, Egypt are all home to ancient Egyptian obelisks. So why are these several millennia-old monuments located all around the globe? Well, there's a few reasons. During the Roman Empire, the Romans were quite fond of invading places and stealing things, and often their favourites... So I'm going to stop it there because he's wrong. Because those obelisks were there way before. So ancient Egyptian obelisks, uh, yeah, around the world. So, hey, it was in the Vatican. It was way before anything. It was, I'm just going to leave it there. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about the ancient Greek gods quickly. So in mythology, if you know, where did the Greek gods go, right? What you know is that um, the Greek gods were chased away by Typhoon, who was Mother Earth's Gaia's son that she sent to kill all the gods because they were doing bad things on Earth, right? Now, what happened was is, is that, you know, a lot of these gods ran away. According to legends, a lot of these Greek gods ran away. And guess where they ran away to? Egypt. What? Yes, they did. And you know what else? When they went to Egypt to hide from the giant that came to destroy them, to destroy the gods of Greece, and Zeus was there and Athena, uh, Typhon was like this really big thing that had like these really big arms and was massive, right? And he was so big that he covered the sky. You could see him coming. He would create storms everywhere. It would just be a hot mess, right? Hot mess. So what happened was the Greek gods ran away. They ran away um, to Egypt. And you're going to be like, Egypt? So wait a minute. What happened? Yeah, they went to Egypt. And in order to hide from Typhon, which brought on storms and all these storms, storms, like, you know, the one that caused a huge explosion of an island, right? Um, where, you know, they were trying to kill him and get rid of him. Well, what happened was the other gods that were Vachinas running away to Egypt, well, they transformed into animals to hide. Hermes transformed himself into a bird-like creature. Um, Apollo turned himself into a hawk. Um, it was Dionysus that turned into a goat, Artemis a cat. And I think it was, um, ooh, what's his name that turned into a fish? I forget his name. Hephaestus, the god of fire, turned himself into a bison or an ox. So weird. You know why it's weird? Because in ancient Egypt, all the gods looked like birds and cats and cows and whatnot, right? Didn't they? They all did. It was so bizarre because it seems like the gods of Olympus were um, actually Hermes became Ebus, you know, this weird looking bird that looks like the god Thoth, right? So bizarre. So Hermes became Thoth the Egyptian god and protector of writers in Hermopolis. And then we have Apollo, who transformed into a hawk. <laughs> Looks like Horus. Mm. And Horus was also the god of the sun. Then we go to Artemis, who changed into a kitty cat, which is so identical to Bastet, the goddess. Bastet, who was part cat. And then Dionysus, who became a goat. And Osiris, 
had the traits of a goat, which was into mysticism and, you know, drinking and partying, the underworld, thing like Dionysus. They all had like the familiar thing. And then Hephaestus turned into like a bull or an ox. And it's the same thing as the, as the god Ta that was actually an ox. And so you have to wonder, did these gods really run away and go to Egypt or is it something else? And I've said this many, many times before. That if the Egyptians were by a lake, their god would be a lake god. Well, funny thing happened. See, these attributes that these uh, gods in Egypt had were identical to the Greek gods that they had. And they had, so the story goes that they ran away to escape Typhon, um, who then uh, Zeus killed by picking up Sicily and throwing it at him, right? And then he's under Sicily, supposedly, underground. But that's the way the story goes. But... And it's as if they're the same gods. Well, here's how the powerful write stories. During the time of the ancient Greek empire, the Egyptians were kind of like slacking, right, on dominance. So they wanted to be friends with the Greeks. So in Alexandria, down Alexandria, if you actually go to Egypt, there's a lot of cities that have Greek names. It's because the Greek empire came in and the Egyptians didn't want to be ruled. They wanted to work together. So what happened was a psyop occurred. They started saying, oh, we're friends because, you know, your gods came to us. And and so they tried to find the similes and they made up this story that, you know, they went there. It was a psyop, BC time psyop saying that your gods had run away and they hid as animals in our uh, country. So we have the same gods. So we're cool, right? It was kind of like a pacifying way of skewing history. And this was written, I think, like what, uh, about um, first century? Someone wrote that theory. And it's like, oh, so you're like trying to cozy up to the Greek empire because the Roman empire is like going tits up. Well, the Roman empire came back harder. And here's, uh, you know, they came back harder and harder and harder. But I want you to understand the Egyptians were there and they were losing dominance. So in order to pacify relations, because the Greeks were coming in, they were like, yeah, you know, your gods are similar. ours. Maybe they're the same ones. They came and visited. We share gods. It was a psyop on the Egyptians, right? saying this fake story that they ran away and they went to Egypt. And people actually sometimes believe it. Now, PSYOP, again, is April Fool's Day. So I'm going to um, play a clip of the history of April Fool's Day, but then we're going to go even deeper into that, okay? Hold on. Here we go. Let's watch this one. This is nice. April Fool's Day, or All Fool's Day, is the one day of the year when you are allowed to mercilessly prank your friends, family, and co-workers. How exactly did this day come about? We don't actually know for sure what started the celebration of April Fool's Day. References can be found as early as the 1500s, but these accounts were infrequent and not very detailed. The most popular theory is that it began around 1582 in France, 
during the reformation of the calendar. Before France adopted the Gregorian calendar, they celebrated New Year's for eight days, beginning on March 25th and ending on April 1st. When they switched calendar systems, the eighth day moved from April 1st to January 1st. Because they didn't have internet, phones, social media, and a mail system, a lot of people didn't hear about this change until years later. Those that did not hear about the change continued to celebrate New Year's in April. Others refused to celebrate it out of rebellion. Those that had been informed of the change and adjusted their calendars began to make fun of these fools who were uninformed or rebellious. This harassment evolved into a tradition of playing pranks on the first day of April and then spread to other countries. However, April Fool's Day was already established in England, which didn't switch calendar systems until 1752. Also, people were already engaging in pranks and lightheartedness around this time of year, long before the French switched their calendar systems, such as in the case of the ancient Roman festival of Hilaria. Modern celebrations of April Fool's Day have slightly different traditions, depending on the country you are in, but they all have a similar theme of pranking or humiliating individuals. In France, they try to tape an image of a fish to your back without you noticing, and in Portugal, they throw flour at you. In England, you are only supposed to pull jokes until noon, and if you pull a joke after noon, you are called an April Fool. In the United States and Britain, even popular media outlets and companies have been known to get involved in the fun. In 1996, Taco Bell announced that it had purchased the Liberty Bell from the city of Philadelphia and was going to rename it the Taco Liberty Bell. In 1992, NPR claimed that Richard Nixon would be running again for president. British publication The Guardian famously pranked the public in 1977 when they said that a semicolon-shaped island in the Indian Ocean had been discovered. This hoax is credited for launching the trend of April Fool's Day pranks by British tabloids. So hopefully you now know a little more about the history of April Fool's Day, or at least what we think the history of it is. So the question you should ask yourself is why did they decide to change the calendar and who made that, um, who made that choice? That's the question you should ask yourself. So um, why would a pope change our time and space and reset it? See, I, I, uh, the reason that I, I wanted to talk about this, and I haven't talked about it before on April Fool's, is because I was actually talking to Millie about it. Because she was like, oh, you know, because we're going to meet up this weekend. Um, and she was like, yeah, so, you know, it could be like pre-Easter Sunday. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You guys have Easter now. Because, see, Greek Easter is uh, Easter Sunday is on May 2nd. We still go by the calendar that it was back in the day of Jesus Christ. We it shifts all the time because the way the old calendar used to work was it used the moon, the cycles, and everything. There were no changes to it. So um, this is why Easter moves with the Passover, and it's the same, you know, it shifts all the time. So we were talking about this because time was changed. And I found this excellent explanation by a woman, um, really loved it. Uh, where she talked about the difference between the Gregorian calendar versus the Julian calendar. And a lot of people, um, you know, uh, within the Greek church also follow old calendar. And I was actually raised in an old calendar church, which means we still stick to the original calendar. Though it's, um, it's the Russians and the Coptics, which are the Egyptian Christians. Which, by the way, since it's, you know, full-blown Lent, I'm actually going to go to the Coptic Orthodox Church that I found here in Cleveland. I can't wait. Actually, I'm very excited to go um, because they adhere to uh, the traditions and uh, of the religion like solid. Orthodox means straight from the word. These guys 
keep it straight from the word. And when I listen to, when I need some spiritual guidance or I want to, you know, whoosh on myself, like yesterday I was a little bit stressed out, you know, personal stuff, whatever. Um, but um, I just found a Coptic preacher and listened to him. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, the Coptics keep things completely old school, like the Ethiopians do. And I really like that because sometimes it's just great to keep it basic, right? Just great to keep it basic, straight to the word, no frills, no adaptation for evolution, right? And the society being evolved, you know, because we can all make it out. We could see Sodom and Gomorrah as something different than what it was. It was both symbolic and actual. And we see it different now. Hundred years ago, they probably would have seen it the same way as some mystery of fire and whatever. When now you could say, well, doesn't that happen when there's a nuclear blast that people turn to salt, meaning gray ashes, or an explosion like, I don't know, Pompeii, where people, you can literally see them turn to ash and they're standing there hunched over by the side of their houses. So... I just wanted to say, um, I think it's really important that people understand that people of power can do just this. Change your time and how you perceive it. Hi, welcome to On This Day in Tudor History with me, a very windswept uh, Claire Ridge right here in the village of Luca in Almeria in Andalusia, Spain. And hopefully you can see the mountains behind me. It's a lovely sunny day, quite breezy, which is why my head's blowing all over the place. But I just thought you'd like to see another view. Okay, where am I taking you to today? Well, I'm taking you back to the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. But on this day in Tudor history, the 10th of April, 1585, Pope Gregory XIII died from a fever. He was succeeded by Pope Sixtus V. Now, Pope Gregory has gone down in history as uh, being the one that reformed the calendar. He introduced what is now called the Gregorian calendar, taking its name from him, Pope Gregory, or it's also referred to as the Western or Christian calendar. And he reformed the calendar by papal bull on the 24th of February, 1582. Now, the Gregorian calendar replaced the Julian calendar, which had been the official calendar of Europe since 45 BC, so rather a long time. Um, it had been invented by Julius Caesar, hence Julian calendar, in an attempt to bring order to the chaos caused by priests adding days to the Roman calendar in his empire. By 1582, the Julian calendar was behind the solar calendar by 10 days, and Pope Gregory wanted to correct this. His reform meant that the calendar would advance by 10 days, and it also included um, instructions um, that century years, such as 1700 and 1800, would not count as leap years unless they were divisible by 400. 
It also included a reform of the lunar cycle used by the church to calculate the date of Easter, which was far more accurate than the Julian calendar as it only differed from the solar calendar by 26 seconds, which only adds up to a difference of one day every 3,323 years. Now, the 15th of October, 1582, was the first day of this new calendar, the Gregorian calendar, following the last day of the Julian calendar, 4th of October, 1582. So that means in 1582, in countries that adopted this new calendar, the 5th to the 14th of October just didn't exist. They jumped from their last day was the 4th of October and they jumped to the 15th. However, many countries totally ignored uh, Pope Gregory's papal bull and carried on using the Julian calendar. England, for example, didn't adopt this new calendar, the the Gregorian calendar, until 1752, when the British Calendar Act of 1751 It meant that the British people went to sleep on the night of Wednesday, the 2nd of September, 1752, but woke up the next day on Thursday, the 14th of September, 1752. That must have been so confusing. Yes, totally mad. Now, going back to what I said about how some countries didn't take on the Gregorian calendar in 1582 and carried on using the Julian calendar, I can imagine that being very confusing for people like merchants, uh, navigators and diplomats who travelled between countries that used different calendars. It was a totally different date if you moved, you know, across a border. It's also confusing for historians and researchers using archives from different countries um, after the 1582 uh, change of calendar, as dates would differ, for example, between England and other European countries. As historical novelist Kate Emerson points out on her website, English reports on the Spanish Armada of 1588 record events as taking place 10 days earlier than Spanish reports do. So you have to bear that in mind when you're using English sources and Spanish sources. Benjamin Woolley, in his book on John Dee, The Queen's Conjurer, explains that communications during the period between 1582 and 1752, when England adopted the new calendar, customarily carried two dates, one OS or old style, the other NS or new style. So this double dating and the different dates between different countries is something to bear in mind when you're researching records of different countries between the years of 1582 and 1752 as well as taking into account the fact that the new calendar year didn't start on the 1st of January. It started on Lady Day, the 25th of March. Oh boy, lots to take into account. Now, a piece of trivia for you. The Orthodox churches still celebrate Easter according to the Julian calendar because changing it to the Gregorian calendar would mean that it would sometimes coincide with the Jewish Passover. Now, here in Spain, 
I will be celebrating Easter Sunday 2020 on the 12th of April. Whereas my son in Russia with the Orthodox Church will be celebrating it on the 19th of April. So I'll have to wish him Happy Easter on a totally different weekend. But perhaps I should use this as an excuse to celebrate Easter twice and to have two lots of Easter eggs. That sounds great, don't you think? Now, you can submit to this channel by clicking round about there. You can hit the bell to be notified as these videos go live. And you can, of course, give me a like and leave a comment. And definitely the mountains behind me are worth a like, don't you think? I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Well, I guess a lot of people didn't know that. A lot of people didn't know that, um, you know, we live in a society where people of power can change your time your month, your year, your holidays, everything, everything. They can change everything. Now, I did want to get into this nine-ton slab of glass that was found in some mysterious place, but we can, we can keep that for tomorrow's end of thing. Now, for someone who was like, well, we went from Matt Gates and we had a break from the news, going into Noah's Ark, that was very important, and you'll see why. I mean... I say things a little bit ahead because I want you to digest things. Slowly but surely, the truth comes out. And on that note, uh, don't forget, if you haven't watched Shadowgate, you can watch it on Millie Weaver's Twitch channel that's going to, it's probably live right now. I'll, I'll rate it to make it easy for you. I want to wish you a wonderful evening. It's April Fool's. Millie did get poisoned. She was the only one out of all of them that got poisoned. Maybe it was bad chicken enchiladas. I mean, I'm thinking it's salmonella. We'll see. She's really, really sick, though, um, from what she ate. Was it? I don't know. We'll see. On that note, let's get that Seven Nation Army going. Seven Nation Army couldn't hold me back They're gonna rip it off Taking their time right behind my back And I'm talking to myself at night Because I can't forget Back and forth through my mind Behind a cigarette And the message coming from my eyes says, leave it.